Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. You'll find this on page 831 in your pew Bible if you'd like to follow on, follow along. Hear now the trustworthy word of God. If you have an encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of self-ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be that as that of Jesus Christ, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every bow, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks for reading that, Ken. How many of y'all have ever been a part of something that was a first? Any any first moonlanders? Um, there's a first going on right now. There's a guy named Colin O'Brady. Anybody following Colin O'Brady? You can follow him on Instagram. He's going to be, if he's successful, he'll be the first person to traverse Antarctica unaided, unassisted, and alone. Um, and he, in the next couple of days, will reach the South Pole, um, and uh, it's fascinating to, to follow. You can follow him on Instagram. He usually posts in the evening. Uh, don't ask me how he does that from Antarctica. I don't have a clue. You're getting a first this morning. So yesterday, uh, yesterday evening was the nutcracker. And uh, this week, I just happened to write my sermon out by hand. I don't normally do that, but I did that this week. So I had three papers, uh, three pages each with each point on it. And uh, Jody told me last night, I was, Christopher and I were going to the Nutcracker, hey, you want to get there early so you can get a good seat. So Christopher and I took out and we got up here. I said, you know, I'm going to run by the church and pick up my sermon and take it with me so I can spend that hour before the Nutcracker going over my sermon and um, making good use of my time. And so we did that and we got down and we went, watched the Nutcracker and it was great. And afterwards we were visiting with some friends and shaking hands and giving flowers and going to the bathroom. And we got home and yeah. So this morning, this is my sermon. 
that's either a good thing or a bad thing, just depending on how you look at it. Some, somebody said, well, that means it's going to be short, right? And I said, you have no idea what happens in the mind of a preacher when he has no notes. So we're doing a first, but we're also in a passage that really is a first. If you take your, if you take your Bible and look at Philippians 2, you'll, you'll notice that something happens there in verse... Six, uh, your, your passage probably becomes a little, it looks like a quote. And, and the reason is that this section of Philippians 2 was most probably and most likely um, an, an early confession, an early creed. If you think of the early church, they wouldn't have had a copy yet of this Bible. And so um, they were still uh, very oriented towards oral traditions and and. It seems quite clear that, that verses 6 down through 11 were probably an early first for the church, a first sort of creed about Jesus and about his descent. And so this morning's sermon is the great descent. Um, and we're going to talk about it under, under three points um, as, as, we, as we look at these first 11 verses. And, and the first point is, I want you to notice its straightforward presentation. You'll notice that Paul, in verse 6, um, uh, begins kind of this creedal statement by saying, "...who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness." That statement, that very brief statement, is the incarnation. Listen, without that, without that statement of what happened, without that actually having happened, we have no, vi- no viable faith. We're exactly like every other world religion. What sets Christianity apart is that statement in verse 6 and 7. And Paul just lays it out there as if it's just, it's the facts. Now, what's remarkable really about that is that if you go and you be, if you look at some commentaries, you listen to modern liberal scholars, they're going to tell you that, um, that this whole tradition about Jesus, you know, took, took years and years and years to develop and to refine about, you know, the incarnation and all of this. Um, and what we're finding is that right here in Philippians, so fairly early, um, you know, this is a prison letter, so we're looking at late 50 A.D., early 60s, um, Paul is already stating as fact the incarnation. And listen, it, it's just straightforward, no fanfare. He doesn't, he doesn't take pages and reams of paper to go through this. He just lays it out. Now, that doesn't mean it's easy. It just means that the Apostle Paul understood the incarnation and its meaning early, and, and he's able to present it in this straightforward fashion to us. That doesn't mean that it hasn't been without its issues. If, you, if you've got your hymnal, take the red book. In the back of your hymnal, there is the Apostles' Creed, but there's also uh, another creed on page 846. And it's the Nicene Creed. And if you wonder, you know, why, why all these 
creedal statements? Why do we do these? Well, because they give us an opportunity to, to bridge the gap through the ages. Uh, the Apostles' Creed that we, that we use um, is 4th century. If you jump the next page over, you'll see the Nicene Creed originated in 325. Uh, but the expanded version wasn't adopted until the 5th century, about 451. So you'll notice the Nicene Creed, as you look at it, is much, has much more detail, especially in the middle section about Jesus. And the reason is that there was a debate. There was a debate in the church about the nature of who Jesus was. So let's pair this up. If you look at, uh, if, if you look at verse 6 of chapter 2 in, in Philippians, you'll see, he says, who being, being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And then verse 7, he says, but he made himself nothing. Some of your passages say he emptied himself. That gave rise to a great debate. And the debate was, what is the nature of Jesus? What is his nature? In the incarnation, did he give up some of his attributes? Did he give up some of, did he give up some of his divinity, if you will, in order to take on the form of a man and to come down and walk among us? And that became a great debate. Uh, it's the Arian controversy. And the Nicene Creed was written, put together in order to answer Arian. Now, this is, uh, it's the great Iota debate. Um, homoousius or homoousius? I know, right? That's what it came down to. Is he the same in substance or is he similar in substance? And the church had to answer that question. Is Jesus the same in substance with God? Look at your Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. Boom. First person of the Trinity. Second person of the Trinity. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of His Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being what? Of one substance with the Father. He's the same. He is the same substance. So what does it mean then that he emptied himself or he gave up? He, he poured out some of these, uh, he made himself nothing, taking the very, what does that mean? And what that means is that Jesus gave up status. He gave up status for us in order that he would take on the form of a man and walk among us and live as we live. Now that's going to become really, really critical in the third point. But it's so important for us to understand Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He took our nature and yet he existed as the second person of the Trinity. Very God of very God being of one substance with the Father. And that's what's amazing, though, is that here the Apostle Paul, there's no debate. He just lays it out there. 
Jesus had the very nature of God, but he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. What's amazing is that at this point, right, here is Paul and he's making this statement. And and Paul himself, being Jewish, had lots of people, numerous people that were believing and coming to faith early were Jews themselves. And this would have been absolutely unthinkable to them. Yahweh, Jehovah, becoming a man? Mind-blowing. Mind just completely altering their understanding of who God was. Remember, God was I am that I am. He's the, the singular God to the, to, the, to the Jewish people. And yet, we're learning, and, and Paul is stating unequivocally, that Jesus is God too. Very God of very God. And so it's a straightforward presentation that he gives to us. Um, and, and accepted by, by everybody uh, that, that would read it. Here's the second thing I want you to notice. I want you to notice it's mind-altering power. Strange, right? Mind-altering power. What is the point? And, and that's what we kind of want to begin to ask. What is, the, what is Paul's point in telling us that, about the incarnation? We're thinking about the, the, you know, the apostolic Christmas. How did they preach Jesus? How did they understand the incarnation? How did it change them? Because ultimately, if we come, and we come to the text, and we come to Christmas, we come to this period, if all we think about, you know, if it's, if it's Ricky Bobby on Talladega Nights, you know, I'm going to pray to that baby Lord Jesus, um, and, we, and we never actually ask the question, so what? What is the so what of the incarnation for us? What is the so what of Jesus giving up that status that he had with the Father? To come down here. And Paul is laying out for us one of the so what's. One of the changes, one of the life-changing aspects, at least it should be life-changing for us. And it happens, and, and Paul is laying this out when he says this to us. Verse 5. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Your attitude, literally, you should have, some of your translations will have, you should have the same mind as Christ. Now what is that mind? Well, he's telling us, right? He's telling us that the the mind he wants us to have is the mind of Christ who had this equality with God, this status with God, and yet what? He gave it up. You should, have, you should be thinking about life the same way that Jesus thought about his status with the Father. That's unimaginable. It's mind-blowing. It's literally mind-altering if you think about it. To have this, this attitude, to, to, move, to, to be in the process of moving away of thinking about ourselves and beginning the process of thinking about other people as, what, more important. So when I was a kid, 
at Christmas, um, typically what would happen is I would get an allotment, I would get a kind of a, a Christmas allowance, if you will, in order to buy my gifts with. And I don't remember, I don't, I don't remember what it was. I don't remember how much it was. I mean, let's say $25, right? Um, so mom and dad would give me some money, and I was supposed to buy gifts with that money. And so we would go to the, we would go shopping, we would go to the stores, and I would start buying. And the first three quarters of the money got spent on me. And it was kind of the running joke in the family because typically what everybody ended up with was a coffee mug. Okay, and um, and so what I would do is I was I was thinking about me as I went to buy all those all the you know their their gifts supposedly I'm thinking about me, and so I would buy I would buy some things that I wanted, right? <laughs> you got to get it while the getting's good, and then I would buy the remain I I would finally like in a panic realize. I need to get a gift for my mom and dad or what. And so they had a nice collection of coffee mugs, and I think dad had some cheap ties. But think about, that, that's, how, that's how children can think, right? That's not how adults think, right? I mean, we don't, we don't think that way, do we? <laughs> some of you are laughing because you bought your own Christmas gift and you wrapped it and it's under the tree, right? Let me ask, if we're so good at this, why does Paul challenge us with it? Why would he have challenged? Listen, he's talking to the Philippians. They didn't even, you know, they certainly weren't as, as prosperous in the, in the sense that we think of prosperity today. So what was their issue? Their issue is the same issue that we've all had and that, humanity has it's a it's a sickness of the soul and it is they were self-consumed they were consumed with themselves to the point that they were pushing others out they didn't consider others as better than themselves i mean look at the way that he he phrases it right um he says, verse 2, make my joy complete, being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Don't do anything out of selfishness or vain conceit, selfish ambition or vain conceit, but consider others better than yourselves. Look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You can, you can rest assured that, that in the Bible, when an issue like this is raised, it's because it was an issue. It was a problem. He was looking at the Philippian church. He's, he, he's looking at us, and he's saying, listen, do you want to be a God-glorifying institution? Do you want to be a people that glorify God? Let me tell you how that happens. Let me tell you how you are your best. You're not your best when you are consumed with self-help, self-help and self-love. You are your best when you are thinking of others and you're considering others as more important than you. Somebody said, our Sunday school class this morning just happened to be on this exact topic. And the author utilized Philippians 2, 3. Um, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. 
And that idea, right? We, we, we tend to think we're good at this until we really start examining the heart of the matter. And the heart of the matter is we're probably not very good at this. And so we have to move away from ourselves and we have to move towards Christ. And, and what is, so how do we have that mind? What, what is the mind altering that takes place? And the mind altering is, as Paul is telling us, focus on the gospel. Look at who Jesus is and what Jesus did. You know, sometimes you hear these, uh, you hear stories about people and they're famous um, or they're big and they're larger than life, but somehow they, they found a way to break out of that that famous mold, and to become just a regular Joe. Hear these stories? There's somebody that does this really well, and it's actually very genuine for him, and it's Tim Tebow. Um, And he is able to break that because he has a genuine compassion for other people. And so he breaks out of that, and he moves towards them in a real genuine way. But you've heard the stories of people, and, and, and you know they've, they have a, this brush with greatness, and, and it just kind of happened um, because the person wanted to get out of the limelight or the spotlight, and so, so they made their way into normal life. You know, you remember, politicians love to do this, okay? Um, and I'll never forget, because Saturday Night Live did a skit about it years and years ago, Bill Clinton going into McDonald's, okay? And as he moves from table to table, he eats some, something off everybody's plate, but uh, which didn't really happen. But it was going into McDonald's, okay? It was his, his leaving the White House and going to where average, ordinary people, of course, he wouldn't have seen any of us at McDonald's, right? Um, but going to McDonald's and having a Big Mac and sitting down with a real person. And that was the connection. And the news followed him and it made him what? Human. He's just like one of us. George H.W. Uh, Bush, who just passed away, got hammered for this. Do you remember? He talked about the scanner. Do you remember the scanners had just come out and they were using them in grocery stores? And he didn't have a clue what the scanner was and what it made him look like. It made him look like he was completely other apart from us. He had no idea what it was like to shop in a grocery store. And they, they, he was separated from us because of that. And the news drove that point home. He's an elite and you're not. It could be very easy, it would have been very easy for Jesus to have stayed in heaven and to have held on to the elite status that he had. But the text tells us he didn't. He let go of the elite status. And he came down and he ate at McDonald's with us. And Paul goes to that point and he says, look, The mind-altering power is in the person and work of Jesus. He is the one that changes your mind. He is the one that changes your heart. Listen, if He can give up heaven for you and me, surely we can let go of some prerogative that's ours. Something we're holding on to. Some power, some prestige. Listen, it doesn't have to be, this is not big. 
this is the normal mundane stuff of life. We talked about it in our Sunday school class this morning. This is, you know, this is a husband and wife doing a house project together. And you not having to have it your way. It was an illustration this morning. It was a good one. And it was powerful because it's real. And we are like that. We want our way. We want it all the time our way. But the mind-altering power is in the reminder that Jesus didn't have it His way. He let go of it. What is the unifying... In the great descent, let's look at its unifying purpose. Because that's ultimately what Paul is concerned with. If you look at Philippians... If you back up just a little bit into chapter 2, verse 27, you'll see him beginning to drive the point. Here's the point. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now look, here's what Paul's talking about. He's, he's coming out of a discussion, and the discussion is there are people who are preaching Christ for other reasons. And then Paul says, what does it matter? It matters not to me. The important thing is that Christ is preached. And because of this, I will rejoice. Okay? So they, there are people who for selfish reasons were stirring up strife and trouble for the Apostle Paul in the way that they preached the gospel. They were stirring up trouble for him as he was in chains. And Paul says, it makes no difference to me. Never mind, never mind what they're doing. The fact that they're preaching the gospel is good enough for me. And so in, in doing that, he was, he was modeling for us, but then he, he presses into them and he says, whatever happens, okay, in this situation, with me, with them, with the chains, with dying, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. Whether I come to see you or only hear about you, I will know that you stand firm. What? Here you go. Here comes the unity statements. In one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way. And this is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved and that by God. And then he moves at the beginning. Chapter 2, verse 1. The NIV puts an if there. It's better. It, it helps us to understand as a sense, okay? Since these things are happening, okay? Since you have encouragement from being united to Christ, since you have comfort from His love, since you have fellowship with the Spirit, since you have a tenderness and compassion, Paul says, make my joy complete by being the same mind. Have the same mind, had the same goal, had the same ambition, had the same desire. And what is that? It's the glory of God. It's the glory of God. And here, here is what Paul is saying. You will glorify God the most when you are united in purpose as a people. And the only way to be united in your purpose as a people is to let go of your selfish ambition, your pride. Your vain conceit. And how are you going to let go of it? You're going to look to the person of Christ. You're going to look at this example. You're going to look at the gospel, the heart and soul and core of the gospel. And as you meditate on that, it changes your mind. It gives you the mind of Christ. 
Now, unfortunately, it doesn't just rip it out and replace it automatically. It takes time. And you know what it does? It takes interaction after interaction after interaction. Sometimes getting it wrong and realizing that and then coming back and going through that process of, I was wrong. I messed up. Forgive me. That is part of that mind-altering principle as well. But that's what the great descent, Jesus coming down, taking on the form of a man. He paid for your sin. He paid, for, he paid the penalty for, for your sin and my sin as He died on the cross. But He also lived this righteous life. Because guess what? You and I are going to fail miserably we're going to fail miserably at this part of Christian living. But he didn't. And the fact that he didn't, that he secured that for you, that he gave up enough, you and I will never give up enough. We'll never sell it all enough. We'll never think of others enough. And thanks be to God, he thought of us and gave himself for us. And that's the message. That's the message of Christmas, really. It's the message this morning as we come to the Lord's table. The great descent is pictured right here. As we come to the table, let me just remind you, if you're here this morning and you're trusting the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior, you've been baptized, you've made that profession of faith, this supper is for you. If you're here this morning and you've not made that profession of faith, let me encourage you to let the elements pass you by. Take the opportunity to reflect upon who He is and what He's done for you. The Apostle Paul gives us the warning and he tells us that we should examine ourselves before we eat and drink. And so we want to take that seriously this morning. And so if you're here, your profession is Christ and Christ alone. And you're in the fight. This supper is for you. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you praise. We give you thanks for your word. For the work that it is in our hearts and minds and lives. We thank you for the great descent. For Jesus taking on the form of a man. And being found in human likeness for us. Father, we're, we're blown away by that love and by that example of love. And I pray that you would be at work in us, helping us to follow hard after Christ's example. Holding fast to him and not to our own pride. We pray it all in Christ's name. Amen. We're going to take our hymnals. We're going to turn to him.